What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is Cassie Mitchell. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Um, really excited to, to have this chat with you. Um, we've been able to talk a little bit uh, before this recording, so uh, I feel like I know you just a tad, which is always, it always makes the conversation better. So uh, please, if you will, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, athletically, academically, professionally, what you do now, and, and all of that. Awesome. Okay. Athletically, I started gymnastics at an early age, transitioned into equestrian sports, and then continued that in college, played intramural sports, didn't play any collegiate sports. But um, in my master's, I transitioned into competitive natural powerlifting, won my first meet, got a little bored. Um, I'm a dabbler. So then moved to Virginia and discovered the joy of hiking and haven't stopped since. So um, I hiked several hundred miles on the Appalachian Trail, got on a lot of backpacking trips and climbed, let's see, four uh, 10,000 foot plus mountains. So nice. that is one of my favorite pastimes. Very cool. Uh, academically, I've got my Bachelor's of Science in Health and Exercise Science from the University of Oklahoma in Norman. I then went on to do my Master's of Science in Nutritional Science at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center in OKC. And from there, I moved to Virginia to do a PhD at Virginia Tech in Clinical Physiology and Metabolism from the Department of Human Nutrition, Foods, and Exercise and also completed my coursework to become a registered dietitian. So at present, I'm a PhD RD and in a postdoc. Wow, that's the phenomenal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's at the very least extremely impressive. So for sure. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, what you're currently doing. Okay, so currently I'm a postdoc at the NIH's NIDDK. Um, they have two branches for NIDDK, one in Bethesda, one in Phoenix. Our primary mission is to look at digestive diabetes and kidney diseases. Um, the research section I'm in in Phoenix is the obesity and diabetes clinical research section. So we have a lot of ongoing studies um, across our branch. We have a blend of genetics, epidemiology, and clinical research. I'm primarily involved in clinical research studying obesity and energy balance, and the depth of those projects includes metabolomics, the microbiome, uh, controlled diets to look at effects of diets to develop dietary biomarkers, and collaborating on a couple of psych assessments and stuff like that as well for eating behaviors. Wow. So... Um... One of the things that so okay so first and foremost, our our mutual friend Mandy got yes. us connected because she did. yes, which I'm very grateful for, um, and it was because uh, I wanted I wanted to find a guest who could uh, let's say like make the connection. Or have the perspective of both a dietitian as well as a sports nutritionist. And she was like, oh, I got the perfect person for you. So, 
in addition to, you know, the PhD and mm-hmm. being an RD, you're also a sports nutritionist. So um, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, like, what are the differences between those two things and, and kind of, uh, yeah, break that down for us. Okay. So just a couple points to clarify. So I actually use the sports nutritionist certification through the CISSN or the ISSN, but certified sports nutritionist uh, to Mm -hmm. get my foot in the door doing nutrition, consulting, teaching classes about nutrition uh, to a wide range of individuals from, you know, 16 to 60. And just talking about recovery for exercise, I did those uh, courses and consulted gyms, and that really helped me leverage my foot in the door to become a dietitian. But uh, the interesting thing is once you're a dietitian, having a certification for sports nutrition, um, usually they they prefer, the, the organization prefers it to be the CSSD, which is a certified sports dietitian. So mm-hmm. those are a little bit different, um, the, the CISSN versus the CSSD. So would mm-hmm. it be okay if I kind of talked about those differences? For sure. Yes, that'd be great. Okay, awesome. So the certification for sports nutrition through the ISSN requires taking, I believe, taking a course in sports nutrition, having a degree related to exercise physiology or sports nutrition, and then taking the exam, which is a very comprehensive exam on metabolism and um, the metabolism and physiology aspects of sport and then of nutrition and linking that all together. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it focuses on performance, recovery, um, coming back from an injury. There's different recommendations for things like protein, um, supplementation. One of the biggest things I got from that course was how to find and identify evidence-based supplements for athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you know that's a huge problem, um, finding (laughs) reputable supplements since they're not regulated by, uh, by the FDA unless there's an adverse event. So that was actually an incredible and unexpected outcome of doing that certification that Mm -hmm. I think actually prepped me really well to be a dietitian and to pursue sports nutrition. So the CSSD, which is the Certified Specialist in Sports Dietetics, has a lot of um, additional requirements besides a related degree and the course eligibility. So you first have to be a certified RD. You have to maintain your RD status for a minimum of two years before the examination. You have to have over 2,000 verifiable hours of sports dietetics practice as an RD within a five-year segment. And then you have to have, um, you have to have completed a graduate degree in sports nutrition, exercise physiology, or exercise science. Um, So if you have a doctorate, 400 of those hours for a doctorate can count towards your certification, but a master's is the minimum now. Mm. And that's that's a newer requirement. Um, professional experiences that count, you have a little bit more flexibility. So if you are the primary author of an article in a peer-reviewed publication, they'll allot you a certain amount of those 2,000 hours to go towards that. So there's a little bit more flex um, since the hour requirement is so huge. Uh, 2,000 yeah, 2, hours. 
is a crazy. lot. Mm-hmm. And thinking about being employed as a as a dietitian in sport, but not having that certification can be a little difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, most jobs already want you to have that. So I think that's also where there's that extra flexibility built in. But those are the main differences between the two certifications. Gotcha. So um, when it comes to uh, like I've had I've had a few dietitians on the podcast. I've had um, I've had Dr. Willoughby on the podcast who helped, you know, he wrote one of the chapters in the ISSN textbook. Mm-hmm. He's one of the founding members. I've had Jose Antonio on, yeah. um, who's the CEO. I've had uh, I've had quite a few other people who are uh, who serve on the administration now or who have been on it before. So I, I'm trying to, as much as possible, combine these two areas of nutrition. Mm-hmm. Right. Because so much of what I do as a professional is, you know, like I'm working maybe about 50 to 75 percent of my clientele are what I consider like legitimate athletes, mm-hmm. either youth athletes or adult athletes training for Ironman, t- training for other triathlon distances, marathon, stuff like that. Sure. And then I have probably about a quarter of my clients who are just, you know, your average Joes and Janes who... They just know they need to exercise to be healthy. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of the quote unquote sports nutrition that's maybe not as applicable to them, but I still right. need to have, you know, a grasp of, of general, general nutrition. So, oh, absolutely. Um, so what, what are the big pillars, I guess, that you see in the differences between uh, like clinical nutrition or the, like the dietetic side versus sport nutrition as far as like um, what are the things that each of these camps, let's say, are okay. focusing on? I think one of the biggest differences in more clinical nutrition or dietitians is the assessment. So and when I say assessment, I mean we have like what's what we kind of call ABC. So we have um, anthropometrics. We have um, I totally just blinked in the middle of that sentence. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> that happens. I could see it. It happens. Um, the anthropometrics. We have the biochemical part. So looking at labs and chemistries, and then we look at the history, health history. So we kind of get a really thorough background and then current conditions or chronic diseases. So we look at all of that, we assess that, and then we, you know, follow up on those chronic conditions to make sure, like, are they being treated? When were they diagnosed? How might they influence someone's exercise capacity? Um, Because as I'm sure any exercise physiologist knows, things like beta blockers are obviously really important to identify when you're doing exercise prescription. But on top of that, Um, other things like blood pressure, if someone's on two medications for it and it's still high, like how do we, how do we address that with diet so that someone can safely exercise, um, if, if that makes sense. So I think that's the, one of the big approaches. And then we move into the diet and then we move into the exercise. How are you eating? What are you doing? What do you consider vigorous? Because 
it's important to get someone's perception of that before we just start talking about it. Because um, mm-hmm. that can really vary, especially um, based on things like age and body weight. For the sports nutrition side, I would say one of the big differences is um, for sports nutrition, we kind of go right to diet and exercise, but maybe not as thorough of a background to really understand the the person's history. And I think mm-hmm. some of that has to do with the inherent liability when you're not um, you know, licensed for liability as a clinical provider. So it for makes sure. complete sense and why the approach and the assessment might be different. But mm-hmm. I would say those of the two camps, I think that's one of the bigger defining differences. Yeah, um, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. Like if if you're qualified to do that level of kind of investigation, like why wouldn't you? Like you could and- learn a lot about, you know, what's going to potentially help and what may not help just by knowing those sort of those sorts of things. Right. And access to labs. I think that's a, a huge one when you're in like a medical system and someone wants to change their lifestyle or begin exercising or change their exercise, we can kind of see what's going on with like liver enzymes or blood pressure or blood glucose and see, you know, are they having any lows? Are there has there been a big change in A1C? Because that's that's really important um, for older individuals and also for young individuals that are really healthy. Um, sometimes they can experience, like you, I'm sure you know, the bottoming out because of the mm-hmm. low blood glucose. So knowing the labs behind it can be really helpful. Sometimes it's no help at all <laughs> because maybe they haven't gone to the doctor regularly, so there's no benefit. Um, mm-hmm. But other times if they're if they're very methodical and have a long history, it can be fantastic. Nice. So this is where things can get a little, uh, let's say, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, I'll try not to make it like this, <laughs> this side's better because this side sucks and so on and so forth. I'm not trying to do that. You will not have me. <laughs> good awesome well I don't want to I don't want to offend I, I want to offend everybody <laughs> equally I don't want to not offend someone I just want to offend everyone equally um, so it's it's tough I, I see this in the industry quite a bit because there's plenty of people with like uh, like their their own private practice let's say their own business mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. where like I f- I feel like I'm extremely qualified to give the the nutrition coaching that I do, Absolutely. and I'm not trying to help somebody. Uh, I'm not trying to cure somebody of a disease, mm-hmm. right? I'm trying to like this is what I consider preventive medicine mm-hmm. or preventive health care. Let's say Absolutely. like. I'm, I think I'm very well within my lane, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, but there's a ton of overlap between yeah. what I do and what a dietitian does. And now, like, there's a whole lot of chiropractors who are given yes. nutrition coaching or nutrition advice or, or pushing specific diets, let's say. And so there's all this overlap. So if, if you... If you don't, if you're just a regular person or if you're an athlete, what do you do? Who do you go to? Okay. 
That is a million dollar question. So (laughs) my biggest piece of advice or my opinion, and this has definitely not ever changed, is teams are always better. Mm. Um, You know, teams, whether it's for sport training or athletic performance, um, a team of qualified individuals is always going to provide a more comprehensive solution, regardless of the scenario. Mm-hmm. It's impossible for one person to know everything and think of everything all the time for every person. I mean, I don't know anybody that can do that. So I think that's you know the benefit of working together. I think, you know, we have this problem a lot in in a hospital setting, too, where non-qualified providers are giving out outdated nutrition information. Um, Mm. So I would say the scenario you're describing is also um, rampant in hospitals. Fortunately, not the one that I work for, but I could tell you some stories. Um, (laughs) Yes. So. I I think this is a common thing because food is a universal experience. If you are alive, you have to eat. So it's personal for a lot of people. And in my opinion, Google is the worst thing to ever happen to nutrition um, because there's so much information out there. But I think the difficult aspect of this is when you're living in a country where like two thirds of the population have at least one chronic disease Mm. It it becomes really hard to provide general advice um, because that general advice, you know, that's exactly what it is. It's general. So if you have someone with one or more chronic diseases, you know, something as simple as like, oh, eat fruits rich in antioxidants. That could be problematic for somebody that is taking medications for blood thinners. Mm. Um, So it's one of those things where it, it gets hard. And I would say even in, in nutrition as a field, like there's some people that are, are not qualified to give that type of advice. And there's some people that are. Um, so I think one of the biggest things that is scope of practice or staying in your lane, like you mentioned, um, I do think it's great to form partnerships. Like if you found somebody that you really trusted for sports nutrition, Um, working in tandem with them or referring out if you think, okay, you know, I can give you some basic things that I know are going to be good for you, but -hmm. your questions are are maybe more in-depth than what I feel comfortable, even if you know the answer, um, Mm -hmm. comfortable addressing. Here's what I think this provider or um, consultant might say, but ask them. Gotcha. So do you think there's like categories or kind of generalized uh, goals, let's say, that would be best addressed by a dietitian versus a sport nutritionist. Like, let's say you've got somebody who, like, all they care about is changing their body comp, and they want to go from, you know, like, they just want to lose a couple pant sizes. They're not trying to get uh, stage ready for a physique competition, right? Like they just want to lose a little bit of weight. Like who's going to probably do a better job there? Well, definitely not Instagram, which I feel like is where everybody gets their information for that. That's um, a good answer. 
<laughs> and unfortunately, a lot of times it's like a front row seat to someone developing an eating disorder. Uh, but I, I think ultimately finding someone with experience, finding someone with certifications, I mean, as a dietitian, you know, professionally, I need to say a dietitian, but a general practice dietitian isn't going to know that type of stuff. And I think if someone's going to a gym looking for that and finds a, a personal trainer or a strength and conditioning specialist that also has that certification, I think it's appropriate to start there. Gotcha. So it's, it's not just, let's say the letters behind the name, but also, uh, some practical experience. Perfect. Yeah. Some, some evidence to show that they've been able to do this in a healthy way with a lot of people and, and they would recommend this person and they don't hate them after. (laughs) Right. And, (laughs) And truly, uh, Dietetics education doesn't cover sports very much, if at all. Um, It really depends on the program and the university and whether or not they offer um, sports dietetics electives or experiential learning. Um, So some dietitians have no idea about the actual exercise physiology because they've only ever taken nutrition courses. And in that case, it would also be appropriate for a dietitian to confer with an exercise specialist because that's not in their scope of practice. Gotcha. So I, so I think it swings both ways. For sure. Um, forgive me if this is an ignorant question. Um, yeah. How much uh, education is, is does a dietitian receive when it comes to thermodynamics of like of body composition changes? Like how much emphasis like the majority of what we learned at least initially mm-hmm. in in prepping for the CISSN is like, hey, here's the laws of thermodynamics. Here's the law of conservation of mass. Here's exactly how you calculate someone's need, their caloric need. Here's how you, uh, you know, you, you can't make changes in weight without being in a calorie deficit. Here's how you calculate a calorie deficit. Here's how you, like... So it was all of that, and it's all very, very well established, and it mm-hmm. cracks me up because I hear all the time, mostly from people on Facebook and Instagram, that, you know, <laughs> ca- calories aren't a thing. They're an outdated thing. And I'm like, okay, so what's the new thing? No idea. Crickets. But <laughs> calories, whatever. So how much, uh, like, that's what I use. Like, these are right. the equations I calculate someone's calorie need. If somebody comes to me and they want to lose weight or they want to change their body comp, this is how I set it up. What's what's the process for a dietitian to help someone lose weight? Okay, so first question I think you asked is how much about thermodynamics and um, changing body composition do dietitians learn mm-hmm. um, beyond a potentially required physics course? There's maybe one or two classes on that. Um, and I, I can say for sure there's usually at least one because I taught that class in my PhD. And so nice. what we did was had 13 weeks and the first like six or seven were about nutrition assessment. 
So we did stuff like how to assess hydration status, where it was a lab, so students would collect their own urine samples, use the the stick, compare it to the container with the pH strips, and Mm -hmm. see. Um, We had them do blood draws so they could actually measure their own cholesterol, their own blood glucose, just to see what that lab process is like, as well as using tons of types of nutrition assessment methods. The second half of the course was also lab-based, but it was exercise prescription. So a lot of what they learned is ways to measure body composition, pros and cons to each. Like they all actually got a DEXA, which Mm -hmm. is a huge group effort because there were about 140 students. (laughs) Wow. Yes. So we had a couple of TAs (laughs) and we all, we did the DEXAs. Um, We sent them across to the campus rec for a bod pod. Um, We talked about skin calipers, skin folds, um, just different things like that, had them measure it on each other so they could see a couple things like discomfort. You know, if if you're larger, skin folds are are personal, they're uncomfortable. And I would argue a lot of people probably don't want to have that done, which is where something like BIA, although it's less accurate, maybe. Yes, highly dependent on hydration. Uh Um, You know, that might be in a client's comfort zone more so. Um, Mm -hmm. We also used the metabolic cart to measure RMR. We also measured VO2 max, and we did um, several different submax tests in there. So I think that class had a really nice blend, and the labs had them think critically, read articles, and kind of comprehensively discuss things like body composition changes, differences in the methods. But I think, you know, our program was unique because it also, the department had exercise, so students could kind of blend their education. But if it's just a dietetics class, there's, I mean, dietetics program, there's maybe just one course. So it's slim, which is why there's that certification and why the hour requirements are so huge. Mm -hmm. So... Also, one last thing. That's why there's For no sure. masters required now. Gotcha. So I believe as the I think it's 2024 um, minimum requirement to do dietetics or to get an internship is a master's. So because nutrition is so rapidly expanding, mm-hmm. and a, a bachelor's isn't enough to debunk all the the junk that's out there, like calories yeah. not being real. Blows my mind. I I hear it fairly often, like, uh, or it's it's this whole concern calorie. A calorie isn't a calorie, depending on you know, like, well, what type of macro is it? If it's sugar, then like, I mean, if you drink a can of soda, that's not the same as eating, you know, two apples. But like, the calorie content's the same. It's like. So that ingestive physiology is definitely something to consider. Um, you know, I think that's definitely a limitation of the, like, if it fits your macros approach is, you know, you can make an entirely processed diet fit your macros and it's not necessarily a good thing. For sure. Yeah. But like, even in that, like, I, I think about this one a lot. You can still Um, lose weight though from the, you know, which I get is the argument. Exactly. So that's, that's the thing. If you're looking at things just from the thermodynamic perspective, mm-hmm. then like calorie is like, people get really emotional about it. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a measurement tool, right? Like yes. it's, that's like saying, okay, well, um, I ran a mile 
but um, it's a mile uphill is obviously not the same as a mile downhill. So is the mile downhill worth less than the mile uphill? They're both a mile. Like, well, obviously there's a huge difference there, but like if you're not like you're adding these other things in that like, okay, now we're changing the discussion here and you're yeah. trying to sneak these other stupid things in. Like, let's just talk about this. Right. Obviously like the quality of your food is important. And like the original, the original, I guess, promoters of the, if it fits your macros movement were none of them. It all came down to pop tarts. This was like the, the origin. The origin of this was, okay, well, because it's a bunch of bros on a bodybuilding forum discussing, like, they're all eating super, super controlled broccoli, chicken breast. And and Exactly. And it's all very controlled, all very, quote unquote, clean. And the question, I know, it's stupid. (laughs) And (laughs) not objective. Yeah. And uh, somebody says, okay, well, can I, can I at least, you know, have a pop tart? And the response was, well, yeah, of course, but you still have to hit your macros. So you still have to hit your protein goal. First, you, you have to hit your calorie goal. You have to hit your protein goal. You have to hit your fat goal. But if you can fit in, you know, a pop tart and still hit your, your carb goal, then yeah, definitely. But if, you know, if it takes you over, obviously not. So you're going to have to adjust something somewhere, but somehow that went from like, you know, it's like the quote unquote 90, 10 rule or the 80, 20 rule to all of a sudden I can eat whatever I want as long as I hit my macros, which means first, like most people hear the, if it fits your macros and they immediately throw out the macros and they're like, okay, well I'll just (laughs) eat whatever I want and hit my calorie goal. It's it's extremely difficult to hit. Like if you set up your macros the way that I, uh, the way that I learned how to do it, where like you calculate your calorie needs. And then my second priority after that is what's your protein goal. And I, I try to get my athletes to work up to at least one gram of protein per pound of body weight per day. If they can tolerate or not even tolerate, if they enjoy eating more than that, then I, I promote that as much as possible. And then after that, we calculate their fat needs or their fat goals. And that's, you know, usually no less than 20% of their total calories. But again, that depends. Are you at maintenance or are you in a calorie deficit? Because that's going to change things. The and more we go into a, a hormone regulator. And I think a exactly. mistake so many people make is they go way too low fat Got and the then fat. it disrupts, it disrupts the weight loss. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I like so, that. That's the second thing you assess and not the last. Yeah. Like carbs, I usually put last and they're like the first that I make any sort of drops on. If a client is going into if we're programming a calorie deficit, like I try to maintain protein and fat as long as possible until they get to the point where they're either like, okay, I, I need some carbs here. Like I, I can feel my mood change or I just feel sluggish. And at that point I'm like, okay, we can maybe cut into protein and fat a little bit here. Let's bump the carb numbers up. And, 
That too. That's not a good thing either. That's a real thing. That's <laughs> high protein. Yeah, we'll save save the poop talk for for when we get into the gut microbiome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mandy. Talk about this. <laughs> yes. So that's gonna be fun. Um, but yeah, so uh, I I think I was getting off kind of on this on this whole tangent rabbit trail. But all of that to say, like, um, I don't hear many dietitians like programming or setting things up in a way that's similar to that. And um, so like, how do you, if you're working with a client who's trying to lose weight, or let's say you're not working with someone who wants to lose weight, you're working with somebody who wants to just maximize their sport performance. How, how as a dietitian do you know you're doing the right thing? Well, that's where I think uh, the baseline assessment is so important Um, and figuring out a way, you know, I would recommend not just the 24-hour recall, which is really a really common practice in dietetics, but maybe a food frequency questionnaire or if the athlete already has like a MyFitnessPal log, just printing out, you know, the first Monday of every week for two months so we can kind of see or you know, a Monday, a Saturday, a Wednesday, and just picking like one random non-overlapping day per week so we can get an idea of the full picture. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm sure you know that weekend patterns differ from weekday patterns. It's important to see the difference and consider what day you're assessing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think other than that, you know, figuring out first off is are they male or female? Because looking at amenorrhea, um, other other life goals besides just competing, like it does the, if it's a woman, do you want to have a, a child in the next couple years? Because if so, like we need to talk about how that meets your performance goals, mm. because that that's something to consider that not not every woman knows to start thinking about as an athlete. Um, I think the other things to talk about with men, you know, especially with performance, is like what might happen with testosterone when we start. Um, manipulating these macronutrients to hit a body composition goal because there's a, a slew of side effects that come with um, manipulating diet to the point that testosterone is affected, which is can be common in bodybuilding. So mm-hmm. I think doing an, ass- doing an assessment like that where we talk about how long have you been competing in this sport? What are your goals? When's your next competition? What? How did you perform at your last couple competitions? How are you eating? What's your typical workout? Are you working with anyone and if you know a trainer and is that trainer comfortable talking with me about how we can collectively meet your goals is kind of the starting point. And then when we talk about, you know, how do we know if we're doing the right thing, getting metrics of performance, I think, and assessing how they feel when they're meeting the new new dietary intake goals that we set. Um, because I think you know, if, if they're hitting those goals and they're feeling like crap, but their performance hasn't changed, that's still important. You know, we still need to adjust it to yeah. where they, they feel optimized. Um, and I think, again, that is where it comes down to making sure we're doing the right thing a lot of times involves a team effort. Because if you have an athlete you're, whose performance you're trying to optimize and then they come to me, but we don't talk, we could be giving really conflicting information. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think those are just kind of 
it's kind of like the big picture of what I would consider. Gotcha. So here's, here's one of the things that from my perspective, uh, I, I struggle with and that's, uh, like coming from the background that I have where I've like, I was a competitive distance runner. There were plenty of, uh, girls on our team who, They looked hungry all the time. I don't know a better way to say it. Like they looked, uh, they looked malnourished. I guess right. I don't even. So, like, their endurance sports, like by definition or like by nature, like you are tapping into stored fuel. Mm-hmm. Like there's plenty of times where you you can't eat enough during the event to maintain you know glycogen stores things like that so so like my goal as a sport nutrition coach is to know with as reasonably well how much calories are being expended um and like what's their a general range of calories that they need. Like I, there's a huge range where you can put an endurance athlete in a big calorie deficit and they're still going to perform well Mm -hmm. and they're going to feel fine because they're used to being like, they're used to feeling like crap all the time. Like endurance runners are always sore. They're always tired. And if you don't know, Tell me what you think about this. If okay. you don't know what your calorie needs are and you're an endurance athlete, you're probably not eating enough calories. And so if you're just going based off of, well, I feel decently recovered. I feel like I'm probably eating enough. I'm obviously competing decently well. Like, yeah, things hurt here and there, but that's normal. Like, that's what I see a lot of. And that really irks me. So, (laughs) so I I think it's like, if you don't know your calorie needs, you're obviously not doing what I, what I personally think you should. So (laughs) I think my approach to that would be probably, you know, if someone came to me and said that I would be like, all right, well, like, let's make a deal. How about you download my fitness pal and just eat how you normally would scan your stuff in and bring it back to me so that I can see, you know, if you think you're eating enough, sometimes people really are Mm -hmm. not often, uh, in the athletic realm. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you there, but I think getting a baseline just to know what their perception of enough is, is really important. Um, because weight is, Weight is stigmatized in a lot of sports, so not just Mm -hmm. endurance, which I know you and I have talked about before, how that perception of you need to be light because weighing more is going to slow you down. You're not going to perform as well, which is Mm -hmm. BS. Um, But even in other power sports, like, for example, gymnastics, you're putting so much stress and strain on your joints Mm -hmm. and doing, you know, three-hour workouts most days. It's so important to make sure you're recovering well, even though you're not expending glycogen in the same way or at the same capacity that an endurance runner might be. Um, mm-hmm. 
they think the biggest thing is like, let's get a grasp on their baseline, see how they're performing and adjust it and ask first. Like one of the things I'm really big on is getting permission. Um, so if someone came to me and, you know, they need 2,500 calories, but they're regularly only eating 1,900, saying they feel fine, you know, I might say, hey, are you are you open to talking about your calorie needs? Mm. And, you know, if they, if they agree, I would say, you know, to optimize your performance, you really need to be eating up here. I know that's a lot of food um, to start taking in. So how about we start working up to that in 200 calorie blocks and see mm. how you feel. See if you're performing better. See, you know, if you start adding foods and not feeling so good, like let's talk about what foods we could tweak to make sure you're hitting that calorie goal. And once they're mm -hmm. constantly eating there, I might, then I would focus on macros, but I probably wouldn't overload someone that's eating, you know, six or 700 calories less than they need to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably too much of a jump to just drop on somebody. Much. Yeah. And then saying like, oh, also I need to eat this much protein, but don't forget yeah. the fat and like, let's eat some some carbohydrates, it's, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I think that'd kind of be my approach because it is important to know calorie needs for an athlete. Thank but you for think, saying that. <laughs> I, I think the other really important thing though is actively addressing and debunking weight stigma when yeah. we talk about performance and we talk about nutrition. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we've talked about it with endurance runners, but in, in certain sports like gymnastics, that's a, that sport has a really high aesthetic, but it's a power sport mm -hmm. and it requires a ton of precision. And the aesthetic piece of that, there, there's so much pressure to, to look a certain way when mm -hmm. you execute a move or a tumbling pattern. And if you don't, but even though you did it well, you might not get scored as well as someone who looked prettier doing it. It's wrong, mm -hmm. but it happens. So mm -hmm. talking about that and making sure we loop what we're doing back to keeping a pulse on body appreciation mm -hmm. and destigmatizing body weight. Gotcha. No, I, I think you're right. I think that's extremely important. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one in yeah. the world of of running specifically mm -hmm. uh there's there's a lot of runners who will and triathletes who mm -hmm. will specifically eat less because they want to look like an endurance athlete yeah and that can cause just all kinds of issues just yes um, just that that are really hard to come back from i mean yes like if you're in a chronic deficit and you're just training yourself into the ground. Like for women, uh, like obviously there's there's a whole bunch of of problems that that are unique to their you know physiology and their anatomy and and biochemistry and things like that. But I mean, I I know a lot more guys who have had that issue just because yeah. men men have been more comfortable like we can talk about that like in the locker room we're discussing that um but yeah i i was following i had this guy on my podcast a while back uh mark bottenhorn 
And his post today, he was talking about that because two years ago he started powerlifting and he's, mm-hmm. he's like a hybrid athlete. He's an ultra runner, but he also does like these obstacle course races and stuff like that. But he's put on a ton of muscle in the past two years. And I think he looks amazing. And there's plenty of people who will comment on his posts. Like you looked better two years ago because he was skinnier. And like, what's crazy is to get to that point, he was, he was to get to the point where he looked like a runner. He was not healthy. He was like, I've got to, I've got to cut my calories. I've got to look like a runner. And he just was struggling big time with that. And now he's running way better. He's way stronger. You know, it's just, it's crazy how like it is stigmatized like big time. And we got to, we all need to work to fix that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, on the powerlifting point, I will say that was the hardest aspect of trading for a meet is how weight centric that sport is. Hmm. Um, not just the lifting weights, but like being in a weight class, making sure you hit your weight class, figuring out which weight class you're going to be most competitive in um, mm-hmm. for what, what you can lift and I, after doing it, I can see why more women don't, um, Mm -hmm. because that was so mentally tough on me. And I just came out of that thinking, you know, I certainly don't know the most about this, but I know a lot about it. And if it was hard for me, like how difficult would this be for someone who knows nothing? Yeah. Mentally, just watching your body change and knowing you're lifting more, but looking at yourself and thinking, I'm uncomfortable. None of my clothes fit. Like I'm, I'm bigger. I look different in photos. I I feel different in my body. It's hard. Even though it's like, I'm strong. I can do lift stuff by myself. I don't need help. And it's awesome. And it's empowering. But internally, there's this whole other side to it that a lot of people don't talk about. And it's, it's, I thought it was really tough. For sure. I can only imagine that. Like I've, I've never, uh, for a while after grad school, it was really important for me to gain weight because I wanted, uh, I wanted to be a strength coach who, mm-hmm. <laughs> who worked with endurance athletes. I didn't want to be a guy who looked like an endurance athlete who was trying to be a strength coach. So <laughs> <laughs> again, with the perceptions, right? Yes, for sure, for sure. And now I'm to the point where I'm like. I don't look as much like an endurance athlete as I used to. And I'm trying to run a lot more now. So <laughs> It's but crazy. No one's to immune to it. Whether you're working in that, in that area or competing in it, it's hard. And it's something that needs to be brought to the table more. For sure. Yeah, I remember like in nutritional biochemistry class in grad school with, with Dr. Darren Willoughby, like he was telling us how like, I mean, he's – at the time, I think he was 46 and maybe 230 to 260, somewhere in there, but, you know, 4 to 6% body fat. He was jacked, and he was like, I look in the mirror, and I still see a skinny kid. Like, and like Wow. Yeah. yeah. I am familiar with what he looks like from the ISSN stuff, and skinny is not a word I would use. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, not at all. Yes. He's... Yeah. He walks the walk for sure. For, exactly. So yeah. yeah, it's 
but it's refreshing to hear people, you know, be open to talking about it. And like, right. that's, I think that's really important. Just being, being willing to discuss things like that. So, um, so here's, here's another thing that I hear a lot. Okay. From this, this whole <laughs> thing sounds like, I'm just like, dietitians this, dietitians that. Other dietitians are going to hate me after this. I think they're going to hate me too. Like they didn't already. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I hope I'm bringing a balanced evidence-based approach to this, but. Yeah. Well, if I don't get any more dietitians on the podcast, I'm going to know who to blame. <laughs> you. Myself. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I hear this one a lot. Um, you know, just eat the rainbow, right? Yeah. So tell, tell me about eating the rainbow. Like, I I think I know what that means. I'm pretty sure I know what that means. I've heard it enough to, like... I don't know why we say that, because it sounds like a Skittles commercial. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I think of when I hear that. But I am guilty of using similar stuff um, with patient education, you know, putting plates together and being like, what do you think is wrong with this? Not wrong, but, like, what do you think is off about the way this plate is assembled? Mm. And it'll be, you know, mashed potatoes, corn, and fried chicken. And it's like, obviously, it's all brown, and there's no vegetables, because mashed potatoes and corn are are not, um, you know, the non-starchy, <laughs> right, the non-starchy, high-nutrient vegetables that we want people to eat more of. Um, so being in Arizona, I said, make your plate look like a jungle, not like the desert. And then my head, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is just as bad as Eat the Rainbow. But it really clicked for people, um, which was also what blew my mind. So I was like, maybe there's something to the fact that this sounds like a Skittles commercial. I don't know. Um, yeah. Anyway, value of telling athletes to eat the rainbow. I think this just comes back to... Uh, well, it's not a very effective message. That's the first thing. The second thing is making sure that we emphasize um, high nutrient, high antioxidant foods to maximize recovery. And where people are going to get that are things like those non-starchy vegetables and berries. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly other fruits and vegetables are fantastic, but you know, leafy greens, tomatoes, onions, garlic, all of those things promote a lot of heart health, cardiovascular health. Um, Mm -hmm. They deliver other phytochemicals that we're not going to get from a processed food because I've heard people make the argument like, oh, I can get that from from a multivitamin. And it's like, well, you can, but there's also other properties to this food that aren't in that multivitamin that are going to enhance your performance and how you feel. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think you know, that's the detail behind the message that doesn't come come through. So I think it's important to emphasize the vegetable aspect or the rainbow aspect, but doing it in a way that perhaps uh, gives a little bit more credit to the person we're talking to. Um, especially when we're talking about, you know, calories don't matter. They're not a thing anymore. If it fits your macros, I can have like 10 Pop-Tarts today. I mean, I think... You know, this is trying to reframe the the mixed messages that we get from some of these approaches to diet, um, which are arguably there. So I, I think reframing the reframing it is 
maybe the goal and uh, not something I would actually tell an athlete. Um, but it, it, it warrants a discussion, like talking mm-hmm. about the importance of, of different high nutrient produce. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things like <clears throat> I hear it quite a bit now that people talk about, um, you know, like, should you avoid fruit because of the fructose? You know, like, that's a sugar. <laughs> Sugar's bad. Like, this is a thing now. So, um, but like, who's, who's getting unhealthy eating a ton of fruit? Like, it just doesn't happen. Like, nobody's, nobody's gaining weight chowing down on apples. Like, that doesn't happen. So, um, but yeah, that's just, it's another one of the phobias, you know, like, everything has to be fat free. And then we shifted from that to now everything has to be low carb. And then, you know, everything. Exactly. So it's, it's just, it's going to transition to something else. I'm sure at some point, like, Oh yeah. Like there's a, there's a, there's an anti high protein, uh, like group out there that, and it's like, okay, so at some point this will shift into like all protein is bad. Like we just, nobody should be eating protein. So, um, it, and it'll just fluctuate. Thank goodness we only have three macros, right? If, oh, if there have was, you heard that ketones are the fourth? How can they be, how? Because you can take them in a powder and a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This is a thing. Okay but it's 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 from fat though like it's oh it's just they are it's from fat metabolism you just break like that's like sugar's Um, is sugar its own macro because like i know but i was just like i'm not even gonna respond to this because (laughs) i don't know where to start and how to do it nicely (laughs) first of all that's dumb that's what i would say (laughs) first of all you're wrong Second, yeah. that's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I would switch those. I would just... <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's but ridiculous. But on the um, eat the rainbow question, I also, when we're talking about those um, non-starchy vegetables and leafy greens, um, there is actually an interesting study that recently came out talking about how um, foods like spinach may actually help improve lower limb strength and potentially athletic performance because it's naturally um, rich in nitrate. Um, mm-hmm. So eating those types of foods or rain, the rainbow, I guess, um, do have more nitrates in there, which can help endothelial function. It can help strength. Um, and that study came from, I wrote it down so I wouldn't mess this up, um, it was a 12-year study, and it came from the Melbourne Baker Heart Study. So mm. um, that's something that, you know, if someone's interested, they can look that up. But I thought that was actually pretty interesting because you don't often see um, more epidemiological-type studies focusing on strength or performance and talking mm-hmm. about vegetables. So I was like, all right, maybe Popeye was <laughs> onto something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that. That whole connection, like, I watched Popeye a ton when I was a kid. Um, right. But it was like, yeah, like, okay, well, if you want to grow up big and strong, you, you got to eat your veggies and you yeah. got to eat your spinach, right? And then I get to, like, college and I, like, start to learn a little bit about protein metabolism. And then I get to grad school and I'm like, huh? 
Like, how <laughs> how did these veggies relate to mTOR at all? Right. Like, how do they fit in with with anabolism in any way? Like, but here we go. It's dietary yeah. nitrates. Interesting. So, I mean, it'll be cool. Ultimately, you know, studies like this, we need to have some replication, potentially a clinical trial, um, because I, I don't think I haven't granted, I haven't read the full study, but I don't think that they're giving trackable amounts of spinach to 3000 people. Um, cause there was like <laughs> 31 and 3,200. Um, so I suspect this is a, a correlation, not a causative thing. So, um, you know, there's pros and cons to this because in nutrition research, there's a, a very big criticism about kind of doing a reductionist approach where we target one food and we don't target a dietary pattern. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this outcome might be a little difficult to address in clinical research and replicate, but looking at high high nitrate foods and maybe a controlled feeding design and looking at athletic performance and lower limb strengths could be really interesting. Gotcha. Cause like, that's the whole, uh, that's the whole theory or rationale behind like beetroot, right? right. Is the, the high nitrate content. Right. And how that somehow translates to increased nitric oxide production or some other potential things I don't know yeah I'm not over the overly well versed in this uh I'm familiar with it from a performance standpoint but I'm not an expert in this aspect for sure but that's that's my understanding yeah I think it's a conspiracy for <laughs> from all the beet farmers because they're like we've got to unload these and they are disgusting <laughs> beets are so good especially if you have to try a golden beet Okay, I've never had a golden beet, but I'm just saying if they tasted so good, then why are they so disgusting? <laughs> well, you know, in the UK, um, beets are their corn. So, really? Yeah, so beets are actually their, um, they use a, I don't know how they process it, but our high fructose corn syrup that, that we get from corn, they have a, oh, yeah. a beet. Sugar beets. In the UK, yes. Gotcha. Yeah, kind of interesting. That is interesting. Okay, well. All right, I'll try a golden beet at some point. On a I'll salad, you need, like, some arugula and some goat oh, cheese. Oh, so you need stuff to cover up the flavor of the beets. I completely understand no, that. Yes. Yeah, I no, promise they're, they're good. <laughs> I don't even mind beets that much, but I know a ton of people who are, like, beets are gross and who have had, like, the beet supplement stuff. And they're like, it's awful. I just yeah. got to choke it down. And then there's other people who are like, oh, no, I like the way it tastes. And then you watch them drink it, and they're like, oh, <laughs> it's so good. I no. know. That's really – well, try the golden beets in a salad. Okay. Not covered right. up, no dressing. <laughs> just dump a whole <laughs> container of ranch on top. I mean, you um, could it that way, but you're going to be missing out. Golden oh beets God. are so good. All right, I'll t I'm not going to take your word for it. I'm going to try it. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so uh, we talked a little earlier about uh, weight category athletes mm -hmm. and endurance athletes. So specifically when it comes to these types of athletes and, and especially uh, female athletes of these types of sports, what are some of the potential um, 
trade-offs or maybe negatives that could arise if there's too much emphasis on tracking calories or macros? Um, there, there's obviously we've covered a lot of, of the pros. So I'm just going to kind of highlight the cons for this, this part of it. So I'm not repeating myself, but, you know, I think our culture in general is weight centric. We, uh, have a prefer a certain aesthetic and the way people look, um, it even impacts clinical care. So one of the biggest things that is a con with this is putting even more emphasis on that, on someone who's already got low body fat, who's already going to be thin, especially in an endurance athlete. Um, they're already muscular. They're already competing at such a high level that adding extra emphasis to this could, you know, prime somebody for disordered eating or an, a downright eating disorder. Um, mm. So I think, you know, that's something where with the messaging that we give athletes, when we're talking about food, we're talking about body comp, we're talking about performance, we need to be really mindful of that and keeping kind of neutral language. Um, and I think being, you know, bringing a level of transparency to this about talking about pros and cons, like if, if we measure everything in this, you know, here's a risk, here's something I'm concerned about for all athletes, you know, but if we if we don't, here, here's the other drawback. So, you know, what are you comfortable with? Like, have you thought this through? Has anyone brought this up to you before? Um, mm -hmm. Just really having that transparent dialogue, because I think the biggest con, of, of course, is, you know, like I said, disordered eating, but also um, not having a plan in place to transition an athlete back to not competing. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times we focus so hard on performance, so hard on tracking uh, calories and macros and times, like all these, we have all these metrics. And then, you know, at some point, most people stop competing. Mm -hmm. I think putting a plan together that helps someone transition from this very, very detailed, like down to the gram sometimes mentality with food um, and times and seconds and milliseconds with performance, you know, we, we need to help them get to a point where they're okay exercising. They're okay putting on a little bit more body fat because it's normal. Um, mm -hmm. it's normal to be higher than 4% or 8%. Um, and arguably for, for reproductive health, it's essential for men and women. Um, mm -hmm. So I think putting that plan in place, helping them transition, prepping people for when they talk about not wanting to compete, what they can expect, because when they get to that point and they don't know what to do, it, there's studies with NFL athletes on this. A lot of them, when they quit working out, they develop metabolic syndrome, then they develop cardiovascular disease and type 2, type 2 diabetes because we don't have this transition. And I think, you know, that's a great case study for all sports where mm -hmm. you have competitive athletes. So I think that's the other con in the long run. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that I think I hear a lot from uh, from dietitians who work with athletes is they tend to shy away from calculating calorie needs and sharing that information with their clients, teaching them how to track because of the risk of it getting to uh, like becoming obsessive in nature. Like, and so I completely understand that. Like, 
Um, I think most of the athletes that I work with, I don't have to worry about that, but I know that I'm not working with a lot of, um, a lot of athletes who would say be predisposed to that or at a higher risk of that. And so I can, I can completely understand why certain practitioners would just say, Hey, I'm just not even going to include this or involve this because of the potential damage that it could cause as soon as I'm not in a position where I can help this athlete. And sometimes I hear what you're saying. I think to the team environment or team sports rather than those individual competitions where, you know, you're the main competitor, you're not on a team. Um, I think that also that dynamic influences this because in a team setting like football, I mean, everyone has a different position, but you obviously, you know, if you're a linebacker, you probably want to be the best. Um, and ways that you get the best are by having more mass, being powerful, eating, mm -hmm. and you have to eat more to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think kind of considering the dynamic, too, as far as, like, are you on a team? Are you competing in an individual level? What kind of category? What kind of sport um, for teams? Like, what's your position? When do you play? Like, how often do you get put in first? What are your goals within the team? Um, because those are all going to influence food choice. And I think... You know, not including the calories uh, for somebody can be can be good in some settings because, especially in team sports, people eat more in a group usually. So mm. when the dietitian is preparing all the food, it already checks the boxes. There's a availability of foods that are are great for recovery or great for performance, and you have the the control of fueling your athletes. And are eating in a social setting. A lot of times you don't have to worry as much about mm -hmm. eating, mm -hmm. um, which I think may be one reason some practitioners don't share that. Um, but it can also be as simple as saying, I need you to eat five times a day. And when you eat, I want you to have a fist size amount of, of non-starchy vegetables. I want you to have your palm for a protein. And I want mm -hmm. you to have this for a fat. Mm -hmm. So it can be as simple as saying your hands are your serving sizes because hands are proportional to your body and yep. using that as, and saying eat five times a day and have this much using your hand in this food category each time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's ways around, uh, just tracking everything. Right. I think it comes there's, down to the person and the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So hopefully some of that, some of that hate will be dissipated a little bit because we're discussing this now. <laughs> awesome. So I think it's time to talk about poop. All right. It's my specialty. <laughs> so tell us. It's a microbiome it... joke for people watching that, that don't totally get that. <laughs> so tell us what, what do athletes need to know about poop? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that start with ingestive physiology. Um, so, for example, simple sugars when you're competing are going to be naturally absorbed faster in a liquid form, faster if it's a simple sugar rather than a complex fiber. Um, that's where things like the goo packets can come in handy. Um, the downside of eating too much of that is when you have a lot of simple sugar, you can also have a lot of diarrhea, um, which no one wants when they're running or cycling. 
well, really ever, but especially in the middle of the competition. Especially then. Yeah, we especially also, then. Yeah, you see, right. Um, we also know that having a lot of diarrhea can be stress-induced, but also can be really inflammatory to the GI tract. Um, mm. Just like vomiting for the upper GI tract, diarrhea is going to inflame the lower GI tract. And when we have diarrhea, we acutely disrupt the bacterial flora that are present. Not a big deal if it's one time and you're eating like you normally do. That's going to switch back in a matter of days. Um, back to your natural GI flora. Now, if you're having diarrhea every day, that's going to change the bacteria that are present in your GI tract, which can affect how you absorb and digest the foods you're eating. Um, mm. And that's where it gets um, becomes important. So looking at the consistency of your bowel movements, um, how often you have a bowel movement, if there were so certain types of training or competitions, look, considering all of those and then linking it to what are you eating and when are you eating it so that we can help uh, resolve this is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Im- important just to feel optimal for performance, but also you're not going to get a good time if you're stopping every hour to run to a porta potty. Relieve yourself. <laughs> yes. So really yeah. important. Um, talking about hydration, that's important, especially for power athletes that are eating really high protein Protein can be extremely dehydrating and result in constipation or stools that are hard to pass. Um, Mm -hmm. And over prolonged periods of time, that can obviously cause hemorrhoids, which are awful. Um, No Mm -hmm. one wants to deal with those. And so I think there's just a lot of different factors like that that are going to tie into the microbiome and the GI tract. So as far as um, what what athletes should consider, you know, pre and probiotics are great. you know, if if this is happening a lot, you know, some doctors will actually prescribe probiotics that we know are effective rather than trying to buy over the shelf. So you don't mm-hmm. really know what you're getting. And in some instances, probiotics cannot actually exacerbate GI distress. So mm-hmm. um, I would recommend a food first approach, you know, eating foods that are higher fiber first, um, like, you know, brown rice and apples those types of things to kind of help firm up the stool or slow GI transit, that's important. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a link for the athlete between, you know, the amount of simple sugars they're eating and diarrhea. I think reassessing when we're eating those and how much we're eating is important. Gotcha. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't really heard too much about, um, about ways to like, correct or improve diarrhea especially for endurance athletes and i know like triathletes they'll talk very very openly about like this was a bad one because like this bike ride was awful and here's why and like it's just you get to a certain point in in certain sports and like okay nothing's off limits everybody's dealt with it let's all share our experiences so that we can maybe save somebody you know right a bad day and uh yes but, absolutely. yeah but that it makes it makes sense just adjusting something like like sugar yeah because you know how concentrated doses of sugar are i mean they can can run right through you literally and it, it's not fun for anybody <laughs> <laughs> no you don't want to be behind somebody who's having that that sort of problem that's no. for sure 
in addition to being the person with the problem. So, oh, no. <laughs> so uh, what are some really good either pre prebiotic or probiotic uh, food sources? Um, so inulin is a great prebiotic. Inulin can be found in, especially now in yogurts, they're at, mm. it's being added. So you'll see it in the form of chicory root. Um, you can also buy inulin supplementation. Um, you know, if someone's struggling to get enough fiber, you can always take a Metamucil packet. Um, mm. It really depends on, like, on the whether we want to stop someone up or speed something up because soluble versus insoluble fiber have different effects on the GI tract. Um, mm -hmm. so that's why, you know, the consistency, um, the frequency and the foods we're eating are important to look at so that we can kind of tweak it. Um, inulin is one of the most well-known prebiotics, but prebiotics really actually are our dietary fibers. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're talking about that, we're really talking about fiber and fiber is important for the GI tract and for homeostasis of that bacteria because fiber provides foods for the microbes that are in the GI tract. So that's how they flourish and colonize your GI tract for optimal metabolism and digestion. Um, probiotics are going to be live bacteria or sometimes spores that we consume through a capsule or potentially through a dairy product like uh, kefir or activia or something like that, that are mm -hmm. going to help populate beneficial bacteria for regularity into the GI tract. I just, anytime I hear activia, I just think of, I think maybe SNL did a skit or somebody did a skit <laughs> where they called it shit tivia and... <laughs> I just can't not think about that. Anytime I hear it, I'm like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> but yeah, it's good stuff. And you know, everyone's different because when I tried Activia, nothing happened. And I was like, this is huh. a crock. <laughs> <laughs> it's not but for I you. But I know other people who are like, I, I had one yogurt and I couldn't stay out of the bathroom that day. And I'm like, really? <laughs> that, that didn't happen for me. Must have had a bad batch or something. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I was like, mm, yeah, not, not so much for me. <laughs> wow. That's hilarious. So, um, that's funny. So let's shift <laughs> a little bit. Uh, when we had talked on the phone, you talked a little bit about, uh, hormones and yes. we, yeah, we got to talk a little bit about like the, the first book that I wrote, hormonal nutrition where I cover, you know, what I thought were the 12 most metabolically influential hormones. Um, but I left out a lot of hormones that I was like, oh my gosh, I would ne I'll never finish this book if I, if I try to right. learn anything like estrogen way over my head, <laughs> thyroid, thyroid hormone, uh, uh, too long. So I kept it to 12 and I was like, these are good. So tell us a little bit about how hormones uh, play a role, not only in exercise, but also in, in uh, body comp or just metabolism in general, and then specifically uh, thyroid hormone, if you could. Sure. Yeah. So we know that when body composition um, changes to where body fat's really low, 
Um, for men, that can result in decreased testicular size, decreased fertility, and um, some mood swings and difficulty sleeping. Um, for women, when we disrupt estrogen, we, we get amenorrhea, which is a, a loss of a period. Or sometimes when we have too much estrogen, we can get what's known as heavy menstrual bleeding, um, which is a really heavy sloughing of the uterine lining and sometimes can be caused by fibroids. Um, so it's important, you know, if, if you're having symptoms associated with a disruption in uh, reproductive hormones or sex hormones, it's important to see a physician. I'm certainly not an expert on that, but I do know a lot about thyroid hormone because it's really important. Um, endocrinology is a huge part of obesity, and it's a huge part of um, diabetes management. So thyroid hormone, um, the thyroid gland is going to use iodine from food. Um, to make two thyroid hormones, which are going to be T3 and T4. These hormones are stored and released as needed. The hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, which are located in the brain, are going to help control the thyroid gland. So the hypothalamus is going to release TRH, which is thyrotriptan-releasing hormone, and that's going to stimulate... I know. It's, it's a, <laughs> I had to think it's about it. a big it. one. Yes. Um, lots of T's in there, um, which stimulates the pituitary gland to release thyroid-stimulating hormone. Um, most people have heard of this referred to as TSH. So when the hypothalamus and pituitary are working normally, they sense when thyroid hormones are low. So when thyroid hormones are low, we get an uptick in TSH, which is going to stimulate the thyroid to make more hormones. When thyroid hormones are too high, TSH is going to rapidly drop and reduce hormone production by the thyroid. So that's often why a physician will order a TSH, sometimes a T3 and T4 if they're doing a full thyroid thyroid panel. But TSH is a good indicator um, of what's happening in the gland and circulating levels. So when thyroid hormones are too low or too high, it can slow up or speed down the heart rate. So a lot of times, um, this is where it can get a little tricky bradycardia, which is a heart rate um, in the 50s, that's or below 60, um, is going to be a, a proxy for hypothyroidism or a low thyroid hormone when TSH is really high. Now, mm. that can be challenging if we have someone who's fit because we know that heart rate with fitness decreases, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then when thyroid hormone is high, we have low TSH and a, a high heart rate or tachycardia. So that's how it impacts heart rate, but it can also raise or lower body temperature. It can influence how fast foods move through the GI tract. So a lot of times with hypothyroidism, constipation is really common, which can make it Mm. difficult when we're just thinking about diet. Mm -hmm. Um, It can also control the way muscles, uh, muscles contract and also fatigue. So, and then most importantly, it regulates metabolism. So it's going to regulate the rate at which calories are burned, and it can affect weight loss and weight gain. So when our thyroid hormone is low, weight loss is really difficult, and a lot of times we see weight gain. Whereas when thyroid levels, when hyperthyroidism occurs or TSH is really low, we see the opposite. So people are usually really thin, they're really cold. They're always eating, they can't gain weight, and, and that those are common characteristics. 
So really important when we're talking about performance because a lot of those are are also indicators of fitness mm. or lack of fitness. So mm-hmm. when someone's reporting lots of symptoms, especially if someone's reporting hair loss, um, really important to think thyroid and send them to their primary care physician to request a panel. Gotcha. Yeah, that that's one of the arguments that these people who – Uh, don't think calories exist. This is an argument that they give instead of like, okay, well, instead of this being viewed as kind of like more the exception to the rule, they're like, no, this exception negates the whole rule. Obviously, because if you look at people with thyroid issues and thyroid hormone problems, calories don't work. It's like, okay, all right, pump the brakes. It's true if it's not managed. If Mm -hmm. someone has hypothyroidism, which is the most common thyroid issue in the United States, um, aside from like benign thyroid nodules, which are also a symptom of hypothyroidism. Um, Medically, that's managed usually through something called levothyroxine or Synthroid. Those are the medications to help regulate the the thyroid stimulating hormone. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, usually we see attendant weight loss we see an increase in alertness, loss of uh, decline in fatigue. We see a normalization of heart rate. So calories still matter when thyroid hormone is managed. Mm -hmm. Managing thyroid hormone is also a, a meticulous process because you have to go in annually for labs and refills, um, Refills are scripted. I think three months is the most you can get, which is pretty standard with a medication like that. Um, But sometimes when thyroid levels are off, they'll do what's called a thyroid study or a series where you come in every six weeks, sometimes more closely together for repeat labs to see what's happening when the dose is adjusted so that they can get the right dose and that person can feel better. Gotcha. So all that to say when it's being treated correctly yes you can't, matter. <laughs> you can't just throw out these laws of thermodynamics right i will <laughs> say though it's not uncommon especially for women a lot of times hypothyroidism can occur around the age of menopause um so it's hard sometimes because women will write this off to going through the change when it's like, Mm. well, actually, yeah, maybe that's some of it, but a lot of the reason you're only eating salads and you can't lose weight is because your thyroid is, you have hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. And when that's fixed, we see a huge drop. And I, I know this from experience because this is a like huge problem with all the women in my family. So but I, I've heard all the symptoms. I've given the nutrition consults and seen the labs. And I, my mentor in my postdoc is also an endocrinologist. So something that I think is really interesting because it, it affects body weight. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And um, yeah, we covered about 50 different topics today. A lot. We rolled through it. And by we, I mean you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully this was helpful. Uh, Hopefully answered all your questions and didn't create too much, too many waves in the water. Oh, well. Oh, well, if it did. Can't 
can't make everybody happy. So no, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, me too. Thanks for having me. For sure. Before we uh, close out, how can people uh, follow you? How can they reach out to you for questions or, uh, or yeah. How can, how can we read some of your research? Well, I'm on ResearchGate. So uh, to find me on ResearchGate, you just type Cassie M, as in Monday, Mitchell, in, and I'll come up. Um, all my publications are linked there. Um, to contact me with questions about nutrition, questions about my research, speaking engagements, my uh, academic history or current research, you can go to my website, which is CassieMMitchell.com. And you'll see all my services and my background on there and other talks I've given. Awesome. Well, I will include that in the show notes. So if, Thanks. for sure. So people can, can, uh, look you up. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about the people listening and watching, but like, I think it's flown by. We're already like an hour 24. That's a lot. We're rolling. that's great that's an awesome conversation yes i agree i had fun awesome so thank you so much for taking the time to do this it's been excellent i can't wait to get you on again in the future to discuss more fun stuff perfect uh, yeah awesome thank you again and uh yeah go uh go ask cassie questions y'all don't wait (laughs) Oh, and if you're interested in what it's like owning rescues, uh, horses, cats, dogs, you can follow me on Instagram, which is at Adventures with Tansy. Perfect. I'll throw that in as well. Or hiking trails. I can always recommend those. (laughs) Excellent. Well, awesome. That's is that like just in Arizona or is that like. Oh, no, I backpacked all over. I've backpacked in the UK. I climbed the two highest mountains there. I've backpacked in Colorado, um, West Virginia, Virginia, um, some in the Smoky Mountains, Arizona, and California. So all over, yeah. and Utah. So all Perfect. over. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm traveling to Colorado and Utah next month. Awesome. So I'm, I'm going to ask you uh, about that. Yeah, feel free. Awesome. Alrighty, all thanks for watching and listening. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Adios. Bye.